Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where so much is going on today. But we're going to bring in two of our very best reporters, Daniel Payne and Greg Piper, have been covering some of the biggest stories that really are defining American culture today. Some people say it's a culture war. It's certainly a robust debate about what sort of education we're going to teach our children and what the curricula is, uh, what are the lines of fact-checking, what are the lines of uh, debate in America? What are the proper and improper approaches to censorship, particularly in the big tech world? But one could argue in all forms, what are the rights of due process? If we are going to challenge someone, accuse them of something, say that their information is wrong or offensive, what due process is in place? And these two great reporters, Daniel Payne, Greg Piper, are covering these stories day in and day out. And I thought it would be fun today. We'll break away from the breaking news. There's a lot of it. Go to justthenews.com, check it out. But really take a look and see what it is that we're doing uh, from these two great reporters. Every day they're building a narrative. They're building stories. They're helping you get facts that you can then make your decision, that you can download the court rulings they're writing about. You can get the documents, the emails of Fauci to see the effort to have a narrative in America that may not have been accurate or complete or fully baked when it was imposed on us. These two great reporters are doing amazing work on, I think, some of the most issue-defining stories that we have at at Just the News right now. Freedom versus conformity, freedom versus government, freedom versus big tech, freedom versus due process. Very important issues that are all playing themselves out on the on the world stage and in on the national stage. And these two guys, Greg Piper, Daniel Payne, are right there in the front seat covering it for you, giving you the facts so you can make up their mind. We're going to spend the whole show with them. Uh, I'll mention one thing real quickly in the breaking news front because you're going to not want to miss this story. You're going to want to read this story just a little bit ago uh, as we were getting ready to do the show. uh, The inspector general for the park police, the Department of Interior, Inspector General, they oversee the Park Police. They resolved through investigation a very, very big issue. If you remember last summer, about a year ago this time, Donald Trump was walking over to a church across the White House property to go hold up a Bible and, and give a speech or make some comments uh, in the during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and the outrage in America over uh, George Floyd's death. And the police took some action to repel the protesters, including deploying some tear gas. 
And immediately the news media said, Donald Trump forced them to do that. This was all about Donald Trump. It was a complete abuse of power. We can go through, you can look at all of the articles. Well, guess what the inspector general ultimately concluded? A pretty interesting thing. They concluded that Donald Trump and his decision to make that appearance at Lafayette Square had nothing to do with the police actions. Had nothing. It wasn't about Donald Trump. Police had made these strategic decisions of how they were going to clear the lot, how they were going to deal with the protesters, independent of any decision by President Trump to cross into Lafayette Square, make the comments in front of the famous church. Now go back and look at all the stories at the time, the CNNs, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and see how wrong, how one-sided, how assumptive, presumptive those stories were. They were wrong stories, and it is an enormous opportunity for us to take a moment of inflection and realize that we, lately, in the era of Trump, maybe going back to 2015, the news media kept jumping into preconceived narratives, biases, and through a lack of neutral reporting, they misled you. They didn't wait for the facts to come out. Sometimes they ignored the facts. They contorted the facts, and they gave you stories and forced you to try to believe them. And let me go through them. Donald Trump engaged in Russia collusion. No, he didn't. Russians put bounties on the head of American soldiers in Afghanistan, and the Trump administration didn't care. Nope, that didn't happen. Turned out to be disinformation, misinformation. Uh, Donald Trump forced the park police to crack down on protesters so he could go have a political photo up. No, according to the inspector general today, he did not. We can go through many, many more. There's no way Donald Trump's going to have a vaccine. It's a pipe dream. He had a vaccine before he left office. On and on again, our news media, my profession, let you down by abandoning neutrality for political agendaism. And in the end, you were fed once again, one story after another story after another story that were wrong, misleading, a disservice to the public interest, which is not what journalism is for. And listen, journalism still does great things. I don't agree with my friend Sean Haney that journalism's dead. I committed journalism, that's how we unraveled the Russia scandal. I committed journalism, and that's how we brought to light the Hunter Biden uh, scandal. The Washington Post has done great work on certain things, but they've disserved us on others. ProPublica, a left-leaning news organization, did a very great, important public service the other day by informing America about how many of the liberal billionaires who support large taxes, they themselves did not pay taxes. They had complete tax avoidance, sometimes for years and decades at a time. And we're talking about Bloomberg's and Bezos's and those sort of big, iconic oligarchs on the left. Yes, a left-leaning organization exposed their tax avoidance. Journalism is still important. It still can serve the public interest, but it can serve the public interest if the practitioners insist on creating a political outcome and ignoring the facts, the omission of facts, and uh, neutrality. You got to just have a neutral voice. Put the facts out there. Acknowledge what you can know, what you don't know, and let the American people make up their mind and stop putting a ring in our nose and trying to lead us around. It disserves us, and we got a lot of falsehoods as a result of that approach. That's the one thing I want to point out because this story today with the Capitol Police, uh, I'm sorry, Park Police Review, the Inspector General's review on the Interior Department, clearly exposes another major false media narrative. Very scary. All right, folks, going to get a commercial break. When we come back, two great Just the News reporters, Greg Piper and 
Daniel Payne. You're not going to want to miss discussion, culture and censorship in America. What's the real story? What are the real facts? You're going to get it right after this commercial break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, two very special very talented reporters are joining me from Just the News. You've seen their bylines. You've read their stories. Sometimes their stories might have even made you mad. Sometimes I read their story. I can't believe this is going on in America. But uh, joining us right now is Daniel Payne and Greg Piper. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good to be here, John. Thanks. Thanks, John. It's, a, it's an honor to have both of you on. Daniel was with us from the start. Greg joined us a couple of months ago. And but both are having enormous impact. And, you know, I've, I've been stepping back for a second trying to figure out, you know, what is it that we've been covering at Just the News? What are the big stories? And I think the biggest story is that there is a, there's a battle over the culture and mores of America going on. That's really what it is. We can call it politics and we can call it policy, but there's a bigger question of what America we're going to be and what America we're going to teach our children uh, to, to respect, learn, or disrespect. And, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, a difference between the 1776 commission and the 1619 project, but it's manifesting itself in so many ways. We have professors being fired uh, for expressing personal opinion, teachers being fired, big ruling yesterday. We've got professional journalists, just the news among them that have written factually accurate stories that were censored for a long time, only to recently be reversed in the COVID-19. And I think this question of freedom of speech, freedom of religion is is really gaining uh, attraction, and it's sort of a a fulcrum battle in America. And so I want to see if you guys, because you've been covering it great, and there, I want to bring people up to speed on not only the news events that have happened, but the bigger ideology and bigger battle that uh, for uh, the soul of America that's going on. So let me start with you, Greg. You had a, a pretty important court ruling you covered yesterday. A teacher in Loudoun County, suburban Washington D.C. Uh, was uh, suspended and on his way to being fired for raising concerns about gender-neutral um, uh, uh, pronouns. And the court intervened yesterday. Tell us what happened with the court. So this is a, a ruling that was brought on an emergency basis. There was a, a hearing Friday night that dragged on for quite a while, um, uh, going over uh, what to do about this teacher who had been suspended very quickly uh, after he spoke at a public school board meeting at the invitation of the school board, which is seeking public comment um, on uh, his opposition to the policy they were they were considering on uh, requiring teachers and staff to use students' preferred pronouns if they're if they're transgender students uh, uh, using pronouns that you would not ordinarily use for them. Right. Um, and uh, and and also letting them compete on uh, sports teams of the opposite sex. Uh, he shared his view uh, as a as a Christian and as someone who had uh, learned a little bit about uh, students who had detransitioned from transgender identities that uh, he uh, he did not want to follow this policy. He thought it was bad. He thought it was child abuse. Uh, this is the term he used. He only spoke for a minute. 
um, and, and he was done. Um, the school district the next day started getting some angry emails from, from a few families saying they didn't want their kids to be uh, anywhere around him. He's a gym teacher. Um, and, uh, and by that night, he, he was suspended. Um, and so uh, he brought suit very quickly, um, and the, the emergency hearing was scheduled quickly. And the parties got to, uh, got to go over this and find out, did, did he actually cause, as the school district claimed, a substantial disruption that justified his suspension? Wow. So for just expressing his religious brief at a school board meeting, he wasn't there in his capacity as a teacher. I think he was there as his capacity as a parent. Is that correct? He, he, was, he was speaking as an individual is how his lawyers phrased it. Yeah. He was not there as a teacher. This is not during school hours. He's just an interested person in the community. Wow. Pretty, pretty remarkable. And so the court has, for the time being, sided with the teacher, correct? He can't be terminated at this point. Exactly. Uh, the court uh, required the school to reinstate him uh, through, through the end of the year, actually. Uh, he'll, he'll get to finish out this school year and then, and then at least part of next school year um, while his case goes forward on the merits. But the, the court suggested he's likely to win uh, if, uh, if the school board actually wants to go to court on this, actually wants to, wants to have a full trial on this, because uh, he was speaking on a matter of public concern that was uh, um, in his individual capacity. Um, and, uh, and, and the judge had said the school district jumped forward from him expressing his views about this policy uh, to essentially saying that he, he would violate the policy. They, they, they leaped ahead, as the court said, when, uh, when they, uh, they hadn't actually gotten to that point yet. So th there could be further, further arguments down the line if, uh, if, if a student were to file a complaint against this teacher. Um, that, uh, that this could actually go to a different factual place. But at the moment, simply expressing his opposition is considered to be uh, trampling on his First Amendment rights. And the court said also chilling the speech of other teachers. Uh, some of them filed declarations saying they uh, avoided speaking up because they saw how he was treated and they referred to being treated the same way. Wow, pretty powerful. Amazing that in this country of free speech, uh, that someone just expressing their political views in a forum where they're, by the way, they're supposed to be solicited. People were invited to come to this forum, that it could come at the cost of, of your uh, job. And it looks like the courts are there. Because this was an emergency order, I guess the court had a rule that on the likelihood that he might prevail. And so they've sort of tipped their hand that as this case winds its way through, uh, he, he has a good chance of prevailing is sort of the court's philosophy. Is that correct? It, it looks that way. Uh, as, as this actually goes into, into further briefing, there could be an issue here over whether the, the school is kind of painted in a corner because they claim they're following state law. They're required to be developing these plans that, uh, that address how to treat uh, students uh, who are transgender, who are um, uh, gender expansive, I think is actually one of the terms they used in there. It was kind of right. an odd term to see in their filing. Um, and, and so th this has a, a little bit of a further issue of is, is the state forcing school districts to do something that potentially could infringe on, on uh, First Amendment rights, um, especially could hit teachers and staff um, and, and claim they don't get to have First Amendment rights because they are employees of, a, of, a, of the government and they are uh, uh, speaking, speaking as employees. Wow. Pretty, uh, that's going to be a pretty epic case. That's going to uh, probably turn out to be a landmark case if, if the parties decide to take it all the way through. The uh, battle here is over, uh, there is a legitimate um, dispute over ideas in America. And Danny, you've done a, a lot of great work on this, covering this. There are, you know, the Trump Commission, the 1776 Commission, which uh, said we should teach more patriotic uh, uh, historical facts to Americans and, and recognize that this is a great country. With it, it added flaws. Yes, we had slavery. We made mistakes. We've had bad moments in our history but that in general, America is a good country based on good values and a good governing system. And then there's this new and emerging 
doctrines, and they have lots of different components to it. One is called critical race theory, kind of rooted in the 1619 project that by definition, America is a inherently racist country. And if you're white, you're inherently racist. Those are some of the precepts of this philosophy. And uh, you redefine historical events like the Revolutionary War. The, the Revolutionary War was really fought to preserve America's right to keep slaves in America as opposed to win freedom from the oppressive um, King George. Um, and then the second component is there's some of the, as uh, Greg just so artfully described, there are these disputes over transgender students. Should biological boys be allowed to compete against biological, uh, uh, against girls uh, by just claiming that they were uh, transgender? Uh, and should a teacher or fellow students be required to address a biological male as she or a biological uh, female as he if they choose uh, to identify their gender differently than their biological composition. Um, there is a debate in America. There are people who don't think this is the right way to go. There are people who think this is a good way to go. How is this playing out in the, in the school districts and in the colleges across our country? Yeah, I think that the most uh, salient feature of, of the debate as it exists today is, is just how lopsided it is um, in, in the sense of, of kind of who wields the power. Um, there, there is a, a, a uh, significant and growing backlash to uh, many elements of critical race theory, of transgender ideology. Uh, it's coming from parents who are disturbed what's being taught to their kids. It's coming uh, from kids who are upset with what they're being taught and the way that schools are being organized. But th that kind of backlash is coming after really several decades of, of aggressive and sustained implementation of these ideologies in these educational institutions. So when, when parents find out, for instance, that their kids are, are being taught, uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, uh, white people are the only ones that can be racist and all whites in America are racist and that, uh, you know, if you, uh, uh, if you refer to uh, a male as he instead of she, uh, regardless of how they want to identify, then uh, you're this horrible bigot. Um, you know, th there's a lot of people who are realizing the, uh, uh, the this sort of thing is being taught, but these institutions have been largely shaped by those ideas over the last 10 or 20 or even 30 years. So I, I think that's what a, a lot of people who are opposed to these uh, systems of thought are finding, and they're finding out the hard way, which is that, uh, as that teacher found out briefly, if you do speak up in opposition to these ideas, if you do speak up on the basis of religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs or just practical beliefs, uh, you may find yourself out of a job. You may find yourself completely immiserated and shunned by your peers. Uh, parents can find themselves utterly cast out of uh, parent groups, uh, you know, and, and friend groups. So I, that the, the fight is is getting heated, and, uh, and there's there's ever more pressure uh, from all sides to to kind of resolve this one way or the other. But uh, as, as for who kind of holds the, the keys to power right now in this debate, it, it really is the folks, uh, you know, who, who are controlling these institutions and have spent the last several decades uh, uh, really molding, uh, you know, these these uh, aspects of American life uh, to that image. So there's there's definitely sort of an asymmetry of power there that we're seeing play out every single day. And this 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 struggle is, is really playing out in the form of censorship. We, we just talked about the, the teacher who went to a school board meeting, 
where, by the way, views were solicited, and he gave his view, and then he almost lost his job and had to go to court. Uh, uh, Greg, you had a, a story the other day that where a, a suburban Detroit school district was trying to censor a student's graduation speech, a valedictorian speech, because they thought it was too Christian, and they claimed in the filings that they had a pedagogical, uh, if I said that right, pedagogical interest. Yes, thank you. Interest in in protecting students from this particular student's view. I'm curious, how where is this playing out? Where where are this idea that um, that schools are sort of now the referee of all things speech? Uh, are you seeing this as a pattern now? Is it becoming larger, more widespread? Oh yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Uh, part of this is is simply that that we have social media now. Schools have been frankly terrified by social media because now they see potential disruptions and threats to kind of the orderly classroom environment and and safety at school uh, com- coming from all over the place, from stuff that is not actually said when when students are there. And and so there's there's a, really a greater concern about that. As far as graduation speeches go, this one actually goes back quite a, quite a while, quite a ways further. Um, uh, in this particular case, and in another one that actually happened in Michigan around the same time, uh, you, you had students who were specifically chosen to uh, give uh, either graduation speeches or something pretty close to it. One of them was called an, an honor ceremony for basically academic achievement. Um, and uh, and the students really wanted to speak about their faith. They, some, they, they went into some detail about it. It, it. it wasn't simply my faith is important to me, but actually using specific Christian language. Um, and and call, calling for other people to to repent, um, but uh, it was not something that uh, was was uh, conveyed in a in a kind of a hostile way, but just as as anybody who's proselytizing would do in kind of a friendly on the street kind of way, or right. you know talk, talking talking to somebody personally, and this kind of stuff uh, definitely uh, can trigger principles. Uh, they are very mindful of drawing attention, especially from groups that want to stamp religion out of public life, uh, that want to enforce secularism. Um, and uh, and this is, this is, these legal battles have gone on over the past at least two decades. Uh, they were going on when I was in high school. Um, and so you you basically have have very reticent school districts that want to try to keep these references as, as generic as possible and pretty minimal. Um, and in this in this particular case in the um, the suburban Detroit uh, school district, um, the principal said you're you're uh, you're talking basically on behalf of us. We we um, you're you're speaking on behalf of us. You're speaking uh, in an academic context here. Uh, you're making references that are not actually related to the purpose of this, and so we actually get to control your speech. It was it was fairly um, explicit uh, in what this principal was saying, um, and uh, the student very quickly um, got got legal counsel, and uh, and they pushed back and said, uh, no, there's actually a long history of case law in this. There's actually Department of Education guidance on this that you appear to be violating by claiming that this is actually school speech that she is saying. Wow, that's a pretty big deal. And the student prevailed in that case, right, at the end? Yes, indeed. Um, the student prevailed there. Um, the, the other Michigan school district that kind of went through the same thing had, had a different response, actually. They said, we'll make a one-time exception for you uh, to, to, to do this. But we, we contend that we are, we are correctly following uh, legal case law on this and that we can control what you say um, in, in the interest of, um, because of our pedagogical interests. Remarkable. I mean, these are pretty remarkable claims. And, you know, the one thing that early seems to be a pattern is that the predominance of the court ruling so far have really supported individuals' uh, right to free speech over the government's ability to censor it under some protective um, uh, guise or protective intention, even if it was a good intention. 
is that a is that a fair assessment of the early court rulings? They seem to be tipping in favor of the individual's free speech rights. Is that is that a good read of that? Uh, it's a little difficult to say. Uh, on the federal level, uh, I, I would say the case law is, is fairly well settled. Um, it, at least if you um, if you have students who are um, who are speaking in certain venues where there's actually pretty clear precedent on it. This is a little more complicated when you get into uh, students who are, let's say, speaking in a student newspaper or a student radio station, right. um, or or who are trying to express themselves in ways that may provoke um, uh, that uh, anticipated uh, reasonable uh, expectation of causing a an actual disruption. So there's there's some Supreme Court cases on here that go back to the 1970s, but also the 1980s on um, what constitutional rights students have uh, in, uh, in the classroom in, uh, on school grounds. Um, the, uh, the, the early one from the Vietnam War era uh, basically says, if, if, uh, unless there's a substantial disruption that actually looks like it's really gonna happen, not just you're afraid it might happen, but you have a reason to believe it will happen. Uh, uh, unless that happens, you, you can't censor what students uh, are, are saying in the classroom or the hallways. Uh, it's, there's a different precedent from the 1980s where the court said, uh, in, in school-sponsored activities like a student newspaper, you can actually exercise a lot of censorship. That was one that concerned a lot of uh, advocates for students' First Amendment rights. Um, there's a Supreme Court case right now that is testing the limits of this case law to see can, student, uh, can, can schools actually clamp down on what students do when they're not in school, when they're not in school-sponsored activities, when they're on social media. That will be an enormous ruling when it comes out. Um, the, uh, the court, when it heard oral arguments this spring, uh, sounded a little skeptical of extending this authorization to police student speech, but uh, you never know what it's actually going to turn out as it may be a limited ruling. Uh, that will be very big for what rights students have in the classroom. Yeah, I, it really is. It's a, these are these are epic uh, uh, free speech cases that I think will define a generation of free speech, depending where America and the courts uh, come down. And I think it's really fascinating. That's why it's so important that the great work that each of you do every day, you're on top of these stories day and night. We hardly miss one. We're on top of them all. And I'm really, really proud of that. Daniel, one of the things that we're starting to see in this debate is that there's an argument, and Bill Barr, the attorney general, made this uh, in a speech he gave. It was quite a remarkable speech down in Florida a couple of weeks ago where he suggested that what's really going on in these particularly urban blue uh, school districts is an effort to make secularism a religion that they impose on children, which is the only way you can uh, go to school and learn is if you believe in secularism, that it's okay for a person to determine their um, uh, transgenderism, that uh, uh, it's your, your religious models, your religious values must be suppressed to the idea that America is a racist country and you can go through all the different ways. And he suggested that someone soon will likely bring a lawsuit challenging these school curricula as uh, an infringement on the right of a parents to choose the faith of their children, that uh, they're so anti-Christian that the secularism is in and of itself a faith, and the government may not, under the Establishment Clause, teach or impose a certain faith value system. Do you see that coming on the horizon? Are there people in the lawyers and uh, school districts and, and other places that you've been talking to who see that at some point this, this is going to be called state-sponsored secularism? And there may be a, um, a an epic lawsuit challenging it. You know, to me, it it it, it kind of seems like a, a long shot in one sense, just as uh, because you could uh, imagine uh, some pretty sophisticated arguments 
um, that uh, that these people would deploy in defense of this kind of curriculum. Um, you know, it's uh, these are not these are not uh, uh, dumb people after a fashion, as, as as bizarre as many of their ideas seem. And it, it's possible to uh, you know to mount a, a wide variety of um, uh, defenses against uh, against all sorts of criticism of this stuff. I mean, uh, you know, U.S. courts have have historically uh, uh, taken a, a pretty uh, stringent view against um, against state religion, uh, particularly uh, you know after uh, after the middle of the 19th century. Um, that's been something that uh, that courts have been uh, uh, pretty strict on as far as um, as what governments may allow, uh, whether or not even something is aggressively secular. Um, and uh, and and so often hostile to uh, traditional religious and particularly traditional uh, Christian beliefs uh, would itself qualify as a religion will be that would be a, an argument that would have to uh, come with a, a large amount of finesse to be able to uh, to make it conform I think to U.S. case law and to the opinions of judges so it would not surprise me at all um, if that if that argument uh, is mounted at some point in the near future. And if there isn't a, a decent case to be made for it, that that uh, religious students and religious parents are are at a particular disadvantage um, and at a, a particular risk for discrimination, at the very least in public school systems. But uh, whether or not that that kind of case ultimately succeeds will uh, will be both up to the judges and to the people who are making the argument itself. Uh, one of the constitutional questions that are also coming up in the in this these I don't know what I'm called culture war, but culture cases is uh, the right to due process. And uh, uh, Greg, you had a really great story the other day taking a look at one of Barack Obama's key civil rights appointees, Catherine Lehman, and the fact that in her prior role in the Obama administration, she regularly advocated for colleges to adopt these new procedures for um, uh, sexual harassment and sexual uh, assault cases on college campuses. Now, sexual assault is a serious problem on college campuses. This is, uh, people have described it as an epidemic. Uh, but one of the concerns of the approach that Lehman and the Obama administration uh, created and tried to impose through, through its federal fiat was uh, that the accused, the often male students, but it could be a female student as well, accused of sexual assault, didn't have the due process rights that it was sort of a mob mentality that led to expulsions before evidence and due process had made its way through. And what you pointed out was that most of the, uh, they may have been well-intentioned, but uh, layman's recommendations and urgings and policies have on review by the courts been overturned. And it seems as though the courts have taken not only a suspicious eye to some of these efforts to squelch free speech in students, but also to preclude the right of students in college to defend themselves and to have a due process their day in court when they're accused of sexual assault. Uh, the courts have been pretty tough on the layman approach to this sexual assault uh, uh, pen, uh, and uh crisis that, that the government's been trying to resolve for years. Is, it, is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, this was a, this was something of a surprise nomination because uh, Catherine Lehman, uh, her, her track record of the policies she pushed at the Department of Education many years ago, uh, have not done well in court in the past few years. Um, it, it, hasn't been her, it hasn't been the departments that suffered. It's been the colleges that implemented these policies um, that oftentimes would, would not let students um, uh, cross-examine their accuser, even indirectly. Uh, through through maybe an attorney. Uh, students were often not allowed to have lawyers involved in any way. 
um, they uh, they may not even know what the accusations against them are. There's there's a problem in these proceedings to try to uh, withhold a lot of information from the accused students to make it actually hard for them to defend themselves, um, and for the schools especially to say we actually don't owe you really much in the way of due process. We've we've told you generally what you're accused of. We've given you an opportunity to respond. That's it. Um, and uh, in the litigation that's followed this over the past um, probably probably five to six years. Uh, it started slowly, but it kind of snowballed up, and now you have actually a pretty um, a pretty big record of court decisions that tell schools these uh, these processes are not enough. Some of them violate your own policies, um, and some of them uh, vi violate what we consider common law due pr due process that you that you owe these students here, um, regardless of uh, of any any specific law you might point to. These these are things you're just expected to do. Um, they've been overturned. There's been some very large settlements. Uh, the largest ones I can think of actually involved accused student athletes um, who uh, who can make a claim that their their future, perhaps in um, in professional competition, yeah. has been has been Recruited. ruined because yeah. of these, these accusations here. Uh, some sometimes high six figure settlements. Um, and so uh, the the interesting thing about this is how how will uh, Catherine Lehman, if she's confirmed respond to this this body of court decisions uh when she was reminded of this at the time uh, very early on when some pushback happened uh, there's pushback coming actually from republican members of congress uh she would default to say this is just guidance um we are not pretending that we have a binding regulation here but there were very clear funding threats to uh some of the colleges that, that pushed back a little bit princeton was among them some of the ivy league schools actually offered more due process to their students than than kind of the typical university a student might go to and they eventually changed their policies because they were that afraid of getting into a drag out investigation that could end with them losing federal funding. It's not likely, but the the public relations headache from it uh, would would easily be more damaging than simply doing kind of a quick settlement and uh, changing their policies. Um, the only people who really pushed back in the university environment were often the law professors at these schools. Uh, uh, Harvard is one of them, where uh, uh, several law professors who nobody would mistake for conservatives. Uh, would, would tell their administrations that this is not sufficient. You are taking away core protections for students um, who uh, who need to be presumed innocent, who need to have a good defense. This is the exact same thing that we've been arguing about in a criminal context. Right. Uh, you are you are accusing students of things that could send send them to jail, and and crucially in these proceedings, they could say things that could be admissible in court later if they are prosecuted. Uh, you can't simply pretend like this. This is some this is some little process where they'll get a slap on the wrist. This could actually trail them the rest of their lives. Yeah, these are really important issues, and, and you know. It's funny, as I've been talking to some people, and, and some of the people who are most upset about this now are what I would say traditionally liberals, people who grew up in the ACL movement of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, who, who are worried. And there's a word that's been been used in a lot of my conversations recently by other people, and it's really rung in my ears, which is we are living in an era where conformity over freedom uh, is becoming a, a real threat. And I just want to describe what that means. You have to toe the line on how you treat people who identify as transgender. You have to toe the line on how you throw people out of um, schools for alleged sexual assault without maybe even worrying about the due process. You you have to th fire or suspend teachers or muzzle students who might want to bring faith into their speech in, in, the, in the public realm. And the last place of conformity has been conformity of narratives. And um, Dan, you've done some really great work on the Fauci emails. And what you see early in the COVID-19 effort is an effort 
to force one story, before we knew the truth, before we had really a good sense of it, to force one story uh, into the public and make that reality, regardless of facts and dissent or unresolved issues. Tell a little bit about what you learned about the Fauci emails and what they talk about in censorship and conformity of story in America. Yeah, what we saw in the Fauci emails was that, uh, yeah, very early in the pandemic, there were concerns from from prominent, uh, uh, respectable scientists that the COVID-19 virus, the SARS-CoV-2, may have been uh, uh, biologically engineered in some way. Um, That came up very early uh, in a a thread uh, in the particular uh, batch of emails of uh, Fauci's that were released. Um, and subsequently, after that, there's uh, there's some kind of kind of odd play there. Uh, very quickly afterwards, um, Fauci and maybe a dozen other major virologists uh, uh, gather on a conference call right. um, uh, to discuss um, uh, uh, you know the uh, potential origins of the virus, apparently, and um, uh, where it may have arisen. And the notes on, of those calls are, are completely redacted from the emails. You do not see what they discussed, uh, really what was what was decided or debated in any way at all. It's pages and pages of redactions. But very shortly thereafter, um, a number of the scientists that were on that call came out very strongly against the lab leak theory, as we're now calling it, the idea that this virus may have leaked from a lab. And that narrative, that perception held uh, for uh, pretty much over a year uh, until the last few months when, uh, you know, uh, a major new attention has been paid to the lab leak theory. And if you, uh, you know, brought it up any time uh, over the past year, uh, you were dismissed as a crackpot, uh, you know, uh, 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 just a, a partisan who was looking for an axe to grind or, or worse, a racist uh, who was accusing the Chinese of uh, potentially loosing this pandemic on the world. So you can see uh, in those emails, you kind of see a microcosm of of so much of what we see in our discourse today, which is, as you point out, this hardening of narratives where one interpretation, one idea is the only acceptable idea. And if you voice anything else, uh, you are facing at best ridicule and at worst ruin. Um, and, and that is enforced through a variety of mechanisms through social media, through social pressure, uh, you know, through news networks hounding you and coming after you. There's a million ways that these narratives are crystallized and locked in and, and that the people who might dissent from them uh, clam up about them. But the end result is uh, really just kind of a, a, a sort of singular type of discourse where increasingly uh, very few, and in some cases even one idea is the only one allowed to pro- proliferate. Wow, really remarkable. That uniformity of stories is bad because, you know, early in in a crisis, whether it's a war or a terror attack or a a pandemic, you know, we don't get the full complete picture. And so debate is so important. And one of the things that jumped out at me in this um, recent uh, reversal of the uh, the dispute over how um, the uh, COVID-19 virus got into the United States was, Devin Nunez wrote, sent a letter uh, to the intelligence director, uh, Avril Haines, and in it, he devotes something that's very chilling, which is there were intelligence professionals, experts and analysts who really believed that the Wuhan uh, lab leak theory was viable and that there was real evidence pointing to it, and they were uh, censored, they were muted, they were prevented from sharing that viewpoint with um, uh, uh, policymakers, and as a result, 
people were making decisions in America without the benefit of knowing that there was a part of the intelligence community that saw a different outcome. And I think this this need uh, and sudden desire to get everything conforming, there has to be one story, one approach, one thing, one size fits all, comes at the expense of, of really important things like truth, free speech, but also the ability for the intelligence community and policymakers to make good decisions. If you don't know there's a dissent, you can't act on it uh, and consider it. And I, I wonder, as you look back in the big picture now, over the next few weeks and months, whether it's school curricula, um, uh, due process rights of st- college students, uh, uh, the ability of big tech to censor, is this larger issue of freedom going to all end up in the courts? Are the courts going to be the ultimate arbiters as Democrats and Republicans, liberals and um, conservatives uh, battle and have very, you know, uh, very partisan divides between them. Do we, a lot of these issues, are they going to end up and be resolved in the courts? Is that where we should be focusing our attention? I'll start with you, Greg. Some of them might, might go to court. Um, I don't think courts a lot of times want to be involved in this. They see these as cultural issues, especially as it, as it uh, pertains to um, people speaking individually and kind of arguing and, and maybe being censored. Uh, they they are looking probably for uh, people to find other ways to maybe express themselves than to uh, go on, go into platforms that may be very closely uh, monitoring right. and, uh, and and censoring. Um, what what you often find in court is the judges will say is is there is there an easier way around this than kind of us devising some big new precedent here. Uh, what what I would probably say for for these people is um, is there, there's just a lot of culture work to do if you're concerned about this this issue especially being censored it it kind of helps to go out and and uh, do the kind of advocacy uh, to to get around the censorship you're you're uh, you're doing unless it's the government doing it that's i mean that's kind of the big distinction here you'll see a lot of people make distinctions between uh, the government telling you what you can and can't say or kind of pushing you in a different direction chilling your speech and then the platforms you communicate on um, I, there's been a lot of innovation, even even just since uh, 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 Donald Trump was kicked off of social media, in in the space for people to kind of communicate. Uh, maybe those platforms won't turn out to be uh, as as robust or as popular as maybe people hope they would be. But uh, I, I think you're starting to see from from other uh, social media companies they're worried about this reputation of yeah. um, of of, be, of being censors here. They are facing government pressure. I, I think that's one of the um, the concerns that is not often aired is that uh, Facebook and Twitter and these others 10 years ago were largely not interested in this business of policing what people could say. But they've been uh, they've been worried over the past several years that they they have lawmakers, usually Democratic lawmakers, saying you need to be more active in stamping out misinformation, the hate and bigotry and all this kind of thing. They they have a fairly uh, a fairly tough road um, to uh, to figure out how how do we not become unpopular by censoring so much while also keeping Congress off our backs. It's it's a hard one to do. Yeah, it is. It is a challenging one. Uh, Daniel, I want to ask you about the courts, and I'm going to throw in another body too because there's been a lot of activity of state legislatures and governors as well. Florida, Texas taking action against critical race theory. Others uh, pushing back on the idea that having a voter ID law is somehow racist. Are the state legislatures another place with the courts that we should be keeping an eye on? The state legislatures and and, uh, and courts have, have played a, a major role in in uh, you know advancing or retreating uh, on the on the culture wars and the, the legal wars that have sort of sprung up around them. I, I think they're they're just as important at the federal level. But I, I think ultimately my my sense is. Um, uh, that the, the, the these decisions, these uh, issues rather, 
are, are ultimately going to be decided at the cultural level uh, in a lot of ways. And, and that's really always been the case in the United States. Um, you know, our, our courts are hollow institutions. Uh, they're obviously critical features of our of our justice system and, and sort of the stability of our society. But when you think about the most you know major and consequential uh, court decisions in our history, when you think about Plessy versus Ferguson, when you think about Roe v. Wade, you know, even farther back to some of the worst decisions like Dred Scott, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, th those uh, uh, decisions were hailed at the time for, for, for settling the issues they addressed, uh, you know, and the, and the people who were happy with the decisions would say, we never have to talk about this again, let's just move on. And of course, that never happened. And people uh, continue to fight these things out, you know, at the cultural level, amongst each other and amongst institutions that mediate in between uh, government and, uh, uh, you know, the individual citizen. So, you know, regardless of what uh, the courts decide, and, and the court decisions on these issues are going to be critical. They're, they're not to be dismissed in the slightest, but uh, what will ultimately sort of settle these issues and decide where we go as a culture is, is what people themselves decide to do, what they're prepared to accept in their institutions, uh, what they're prepared to have their kids taught, uh, the the level of discourse and the type of discourse they're prepared to to put up with and accept, that's where you're ultimately going to see the 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 coin land is uh, is how people themselves feel, and that may in part be shaped by court decisions, but there's a lot of other sure. factors that go into it as well. Yep, the the will of the American people often is the greatest shaper of our historical experience. Well, listen, I can tell you one thing: our listeners today got a great example of why your reporting, yours, Greg, and Yours, Daniel, is so important to Justin News. You guys are, are neutral. You're going after the facts. You're, you're following really important stories, uh, and you do it with an excellence that we're so gracious uh, and grateful to have here at Justin News. I'm, I want to thank you for joining the show and uh, for continuing to keep us informed with all of your great reporting. Great. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a good rest of the day. I know they want to get back and break some more news, and I'm sure they're going to do that. We're going to get right back and wrap things up for the day in just a few seconds right after these commercial breaks. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock provide the premier detection technology to protect your home and its title. The instant they detect an activity or something suspicious, they mobilize to help shut it down. We won't know a thief took us off our title until it's too late. That's why Title Lock jumps into action right away. The titles to all our homes are easily found online. A criminal or renter, even a family member, can simply forge your signature on a home sale form. Then he or she refiles as the new owner and bam, your home is not in your name and all of a sudden debts are being taken out against it. That's why Home Title Lock is my choice. Find out for free when you use my code JUSTNEWS at sign up. You'll get a free comprehensive scan of your home's title and 30 days of legendary Home Title Lock protection free. So go to HomeTitleLock.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's the promo code JUSTNEWS at HomeTitleLock.com. Go there today. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Report. So grateful you joined. I can't thank you enough 
or what you do every day to support us by reading, by clicking on ads, by buying the services and the great products of our advertisers. You know them all. Uh, Bambi, Kansas City, Stakes, Wild Alaskan, so many incredible players that just bless us with support. And you bless them when you buy them. And when you do, when you buy their products and services, you're supporting this show. You're supporting the mission of Just the News. I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And thank you for tuning in again tomorrow. Well, we'll have great guests and some breaking news. Stay tuned. I think we're going to have some good scoopy stuff tomorrow. All right, folks, that wraps it up for today. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now.